Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to the Globe Podcast. Dr. Christopher Chappell is Doshi Professor of Indic and Comparative Theology and Founding Director of the Master of Arts in Yoga Studies at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. He's published over 20 books on Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, yoga, and religion and ecology. He's also a featured instructor on GLOW. I'm so excited to bring you a series of lectures from Dr. Chapel about the history of yoga. I'm grateful to have met scholars like Professor Chapel and Professor Douglas Brooks, both of whom we've featured on the GLOW podcast and on GLOW.com. The history of yoga is a very large topic. Telling the story of yoga's history is challenging for many reasons. It's a history that spans thousands of years and many cultures and can vary by interpretation, personal perspective, and personal agendas. And it isn't a history that uh, seems to be easily told in serial chronological time. In the West, we like to think of history as one thing happening after another. The Bible, for example, starts with the words, in the beginning. But in India, our relationship with time is different. It's maybe more of a spiral with feedback loops rather than a straight line. So in this series of lectures, you can expect a journey that goes deeper and deeper. To the seeker of knowledge, they will, as these stories always have, take you on a journey to understand where we come from and who we are now. I hope you enjoy Professor Chris Chappell's lectures on the history of yoga. Each episode combines several of Professor Chappell's lectures with a little break in between each lecture. Here's episode one. Yoga, such a small word, just two syllables. And as we seek to understand its origins, we find that we're thrust into a realm of so many questions, so many questions that can be posed and answered, and so many questions that remain questions. And what this can prompt within the person seeking knowledge is to question the very premises about how we know, what we know, and why do we ask the question, particularly in regard to time and history. In India, as with many other of the ancient civilizations, we have a rather diffident, complex relationship with the notion of starting, continuing, and finishing. In civilizations a bit to the west of India, a creation narrative came forth that laid the foundation for serial, chronological, chronicable time. If we look at the book of Genesis, it's a narrative. It includes, it begins with a narrative of a creation point for the beginning of the world. And as we look at the great scriptures of the early traditions that arise out of the Middle East, 
Judaism, then giving rise later to Christianity, and then giving rise later still to Islam, we see that there's a narrative that begins with that point of Genesis, that unfolds through the history of kings and kingdoms, and signals that there will be this thing called the eschaton, there will be this thing called the end of time, and that all things will change when time grows to a close. In India and in China, we have different narratives, we have different relationships with time, and consequently, different relationships with what we would call history. So in this introductory segment to our exploration of the origins and the history of yoga, what we will do is create a spiral where we will be continually revisiting our notion of time, place, and sequence, and we will be using that spiral to bring into fuller awareness our expectations and unpack, and a little bit critically, how history drives the agenda of culture. In India, rather than setting one moment following another, going to a fixed horizon. In India, we have this notion of an unknowable and unknown point of origin that results in really a perception of chaos, of that unknowable being always present, and a movement from that unmanifest into a nameable world with form that then goes into a place of maturity, of withering and decline. But this withering and decline and eventual seeming death lays the seeds just as the seasons return again and again for a rebirth, for a reconstitution. And it is said in India that this has been taking place since forever, and this process will unfold forever. Philosophically, for those who remain in darkness, they will return without ever understanding, without ever really comprehending any purpose in this meaningless chaos that rises and falls and rises and falls. But for the philosopher, for the one that chooses to take a second look, there will be, in a sense, a going beneath and a rising above that enables the person of wisdom with that distanced view and with that view of the particulars in their particularity to arrive at a place of completion, at a place of understanding, 
and at a place of peace. So history becomes inextricably linked to one's own narrative. And anything that is to be seen in the external world is inscribed within one's inner landscape. And by understanding that inner landscape, one can understand and, in a sense, gain mastery over that external world. Now that we've problematized sequence and the notion of history, I want to invite us to conceptualize through all that we've learned in our, our various schools along the way from grade school through high school, perhaps into college and beyond, that we have a world that's on a globe that now has a narrative that goes back the universe story some 13.7 billion years ago, and the earth narrative going back some 4 billion years ago, and then culture narratives going back some 100,000 or 200,000 years ago. And by following the work of these remarkable archeologists, we know that Homo sapiens began to stand up in various forms, with little bodies, with big bodies, with heads that had a very large suborbital brow, and heads that eventually, with Homo sapiens, resemble our own head and body form. And that as the archeologists have gone through Africa, through China, through Australia, up into the reaches of Europe, which many times deeply covered in ice, probing the early remains of humans in the Americas, we know that people with their ingenuity managed to create different forms of what we would call civil society. And the most ancient that we've been able to dig up out of the ground where we find the dawn and the birth of settled agriculture, the area of Turkey, the area of China, we see that where there are rivers, humans flourish. And four major, and there are of course many, many others, but four major ones that are known to us are the Nile River Valley civilizations, the Mesopotamian River Valley civilizations in what is now Iran and Iraq, primarily Iraq, the Indus civilizational area, which is the northwest quadrant of modern-day India, and then the Chinese riverine civilizations along the Huangpo and the Yangtze rivers. And if we were to characterize, starting with China, we see the emergence of this celebration of the intersection between heaven and earth, and a philosophy grounded in a reciprocity between yin and yang, between a welcoming feminine, earth-based reality interwoven with the vastness of the sky, if we move a bit to the west, we will see this 
really fluorescent civilization in India that, again, along the rivers were able, these rivers enabled that civilization to trade, to trade up and down the rivers and to go down into the Arabian Sea and trade up into the area of Mesopotamia and even over into Egypt. We'll look with some detail on that particular civilization. Then Tigris-Euphrates. We get the story of Gilgamesh, and the story of Gilgamesh questions what it means to be a friend. Some of the very earliest literature known to the human species, and questions, why? Why do we suffer? Why do our questions remain unanswerable? And even a little bit further to the west, along the Nile, we see the emergence and really the flourishing of all of the different dynasties known to us. We see the Ankh, the symbol of universal life, and the bloom of so many different gods and goddesses, so many different stories about why we were here, what we must do, and eventually that interplay between the Mesopotamian story and the Egyptian story yields the Hebrew Bible, the great narrative of people in exile that are displaced from the Tigris-Euphrates culture area into what is modern-day Israel, but then again exiled from there into Egypt, taken into captivity, and then returning, and then being exiled again from there and having to, and this is where we get a chronological verifiable history, the time of the Babylonian exile, the time of the return, the time of the pharaohs, the time of all of the Roman Empire, and eventually leading up to our modern culture. So this notion of history tied to that interplay between Mesopotamia and Egypt, forming the foundation for what later became the Greek culture and the Roman culture, carries a great deal of resonance and overlap with what was happening a little bit further to the east. In Iranian and Persian civilization, with the foundational book called the Zend Avesta, we see a notion arising probably around 800 BC of a cosmic battle between goodness and evil. And we find echoes of this, and in fact, echoes of the same gods and goddesses resounding through the Vedas, through the Indian culture area. And some 3,500 years ago, around 1500 BCE, those people who were creating through their song the Zendavesta in Iran, and what we call the Rig Veda in India, were documenting um, a way of being in the world that created some categories that become vital to figuring out this jigsaw of what later emerges as yoga traditions.
the early peoples, whether in Egypt or in Mesopotamia or in Persia or in India or in China or in Southeast Asia or even in Mesoamerica, they found themselves upon this planet struggling, as did Gilgamesh, with one challenge after another. And from this emerged the life patterns of how to best form a human life, how to sanctify birth, how to educate children, how to initiate children into adulthood, how to organize adulthood so that there could be stability, so that there could be safety and love, and how in the mature years of adulthood, wisdom could be gleaned in preparation for the good death. Carl Jung, Merce Iliade, William James, Evelyn Underhill, so many thinkers have looked at all of the cultural contributions throughout history and developed a sequence and a system of archetypes that give us footholds and handholds so that we can climb up out of confusion and see that, yes, there are basic human needs that must be met. Now, returning to this notion of history, that's a fairly big historical narrative. The emergence of the universe, the formation of the earth, the formation of civilization itself. There may be a temptation to think back that, oh, there was this golden age where everything was perfect. There was this place like the Garden of Eden. And sometimes we may think that we can romanticize even about yoga. It's called the Satya Yuga, where everybody did what everybody was supposed to do and everybody lived a perfect and happy life because everybody did yoga. And as we grow into maturity, we know that in our own best life, there's always a glitch in the road. And as we look back on history itself, we know that yes, there are periods, there are epochs of stability and happiness, yet they go into decline just as human life goes into decline. And as we work through various historical periods in relationship to yoga, we will see similarly that there will be different forms of yoga that arise and then fall. We will see that there are different teachers of yoga throughout the ages and through our, our immediate lifetime experience who rise into places of prominence and make wonderful, beautiful contributions and then it all changes. It all changes. So as we move forward, we'll keep in mind, particularly that in India, the archaeology, remarkable, but 
the archaeology and even the texts will not answer all of our questions and we'll be invited again and again. Why are we looking to history and how does our own history, our own narrative interact with this larger view of the rise, the development, the maturity of yoga, and the rise, the development, maturity, and change within culture, within civilizations, and within all of these wonderful lessons to be learned from history, all of these valuable lessons to be learned from examining closely place, geography, time, and as we move forward closer to our own history, the beautiful sculpture and textual evidence that we have for why yoga has endured for all of these many centuries. So we are off on a journey together, and I look very much forward to our explorations. The modern history of India really began in the 1920s when a team of archaeologists, some of Indian origin, some British, began to dig in the Indus River Valley in what is now called modern-day Pakistan. And the narrative that emerged remains a very controversial narrative. History is written by the people who publish the books or post the websites. Fake news cannot be, cannot be seen as unrelated to the appropriation of history. Knowledge is power. And the British, as they shared their findings, created a narrative that, as I tell it, I think that you will find it at least somewhat suspect. And in the great Oxford history and the great Cambridge history of India, this is the narrative that the British provided. That there was a community of short, dark-skinned, hair, curly-haired people living in India who were invaded by taller, fairer, more noble people, self-named Aryans from the north into the west, who came into India bringing a higher level of civilization and bringing a nobility that was later rediscovered by the kin, the British themselves who came and told these people that their point of origin, their really entry onto the world stage as a civilization did not happen until these tall, fair, straight-haired people brought the gifts of this superior culture. Now, if we back up and we look 
at the evidence from that very early archeological excavation and series of excavations that continue into the present, we see that for 2,000 continuous years, roughly from 3500 BC to 1500 BC, on the banks not only of the Indus River, but the Sutledge and a river that's probably dried up now called the Sarasvati River, extending all the way over onto the Gangetic Plain and even perhaps to the Yamuna River, that there had emerged a way of life and a stability of culture that was characterized and can be identified from material remains that include terracotta shards, that include terracotta figurines, that include small sculptures of human figures as well as of animals, and that in this culture there was also a convention of what is called the steatite seal, which is a cylinder that would be rolled out over clay and then used to bundle up goods that were exported from that area to Mesopotamia and exported most likely all the way around the Saudi Arabian Peninsula up into the Red Sea and then taken over land into the Nile River. And the goods from those civilizations came, and we're talking more than 5,000 years ago, and they became popular um, in India and the Indian goods, including the Indian jewelry, became prized within Mesopotamian culture, in Samaria, and also within Egypt. So there was this flow of culture, material culture, and undoubtedly a flow of ideas along those sea routes and continuing through the Khyber Pass overland up into the regions that eventually became the cradle of European civilizations in Greece and in Rome. We know that eventually Roman coins were found on the southeast coast of India, that the world has been a place of great communication that overland as well as maritime routes took Buddhism at a later time into China and as distant as Japan. But if we go back to what was written by the colonial rulers, by the British, we see that their narrative did not necessarily correlate to the evidence, the material evidence, the archaeologists unearthed. And what the archaeologists unearthed from 5,000 years ago can be encapsulated within five major thematic categories. And the first is the adobe and the drain. For 2,000 years, bricks were created of the same exact dimensions and became the literal building blocks of walled communities, walled villages, and actually large cities that would have a courtyard-based home, much as we see in India even today, and would have a drainage system that included cisterns and sewers that ensured that fresh water flowed within these cities 
and that water that had been fouled carried the pollution out of the city into settlement areas where it could return to the ground. So a fairly sophisticated system of sanitation, a very sophisticated knowledge of hydrology and water, and not only in terms of the sustenance of humans with agriculture and flowing water and management of wastewater, but also a maritime culture that knew how to move goods and how to move ideas with merchants and, and philosophers into other parts of the world to the west and eventually to the east. Now, so water management and material adobe settled civilization that included tanks that held water, much as you would see within the temple tanks of India today, and fortified homesteads that allowed safety and security for families. Now moving next into the figurines, and by the countless thousands what some have called fertility figurines have been found. And these are images of women who carry the mystery of the regeneration and the continuation of life, many of them seen with pregnant bellies. And we have no idea exactly how these figurines were used in terms of ritual, but we have a sense from their sheer abundance that women were revered as the givers of life and that women were revered for that very power. The next images that we can see both in terms of figurines and in terms of insignia seals are the images of seemingly meditative or at least very powerful figures. We have a classic image that shows, not unlike the sort of draped materials that we see with both dhotis and saris in India today, with a trefoil with a, like a shamrock, a three-leafed shamrock, adorning the body of a regal figure whose eyes seem to indicate a contemplative state. And this figure of dignity with a reflective gaze coupled with multiple depictions of someone sitting much as I sit today, with legs crossed, perhaps heel to heel, wrists to elbows, and elbows to knees, in a picture of stability, a pose of really being unruffled. Okay, this motif, appears again and again on the seals. And with letters that have not yet been deciphered, it may be undecipherable, 
Archaeology continues, and there may be something of an equivalent Rosetta Stone. The Finns have tried to decipher it. The Indians have tried to decipher these letters. We don't even know for sure if they're letters. We don't know really what's indicated, but we do know that this physicality of stability goes back some 5,000 years within India. And then we see the many, many wonderful animals. Animals that are adored, animals that are adorned. Representations of the bull, representations of the elephant, and not in the sense of servitude, although certainly these animals were brought into through settled agricultural norms into servitude for the human, as we see even today. But there's something that we see that comes down even into the cultures and celebrations of South India called Pongal, where we know that they loved these animals. They adorned them with garlands. They adorned them periodically, then even as today, with polka dots, with color to celebrate this reciprocity between the human and the animal. Okay, these are trademarks of the early Indian civilization that continue today. An interest in a secure environment that is enhanced with flowing water, an interest in the power of women, in this fecund ability to celebrate the continuity of life, this presence of a meditating figure, and this reciprocity with animals, this um, love through representation that carries down even into the present time. And all of this, all of this can be perhaps linked to what later becomes named as yoga. Features of the goddess tradition of what we call Shakti. Features of venerating that blessed relationship between earth and water that gives us the adobe, earth and water heated through fire to create the material culture that grounds so much of what allows India to go forward today. This recognition of the regal pose, this recognition of the symmetry of the human body, and a symmetry complemented with animal-human relations that are held with a sense of reverence. And this we will also explore in much later medieval yoga asana. And a very important find from the work of archaeologists of the last 50 years has been cultural pluralism. 
Now the British had come up with a narrative that these early cities were cast into the dust by noble people coming from the Northeast. But in fact, as we go back and we revisit these cities, we see that no, those people from the Northeast who followed, or from the Northwest rather, who followed that life way that is similar to that of the Persians and similar to that of the Turks, similar to that of the ancient Greeks and Romans, and similar even to the mythology of, of Norway and of Scandinavia, that those people had neighborhoods already established some 5,000 years ago within these hallmark cities of Mohenjo-daro and Harappa, that there were entire neighborhoods that indicated a life way and a physiognomy from their skeletons we know that those tall people were part of this interwoven culture from the earliest strata of archeological evidence. We know also that the people of that shorter stature that most likely had the curlier hair and the darker skin, that they too had neighborhoods and that they too had burial practices that are recognizable within Dravidian cultures of India, associated primarily with the South even today. And we know that there were neighborhoods and cultural practices associated with the third often overlooked group in India, which is the Munda group. And these are the very ancient inhabitants of India going back probably at least 100,000 years ago, who in modern times have expressed themselves in the cultures of the Bhils and the Gonds. They're called the tribals and occupy a very particular recognized niche within India today. But their numbers, even today, are more than 100 million. And they too had a presence within these early neighborhoods, these clusters of, of cities. And then there are two other groups that have been identified by archeologists that we just don't know. We don't really have ways yet to understand their place in history and the specificity of their contributions. But what we do know from this 3500 to 1500 BC continuity of multicultural cities is that India has long embraced the power of woman, has long revered the animal and all that the animal represents, and that India has given attention to human posture, both in standing form and in seated form. And what we see moving forward right up to the present translate it into the icons and the images of India is the elephant revered as the happy god Ganesh, the god of protection. 
And we know that womanhood remains iconic in India as seen in the image of Sarasvati, she who has the flow, the flow of culture, the flow of music, the flow of language, as well as Lakshmi, the flow of wealth, Durga, the presence of strength. We know that that continuity of Shakti continues into modern culture. And we know that just as these virtually indecipherable speakings through these images and through these seals show that array of animals and the presence of trees and the stability of a human figure, we know that culture in India carries a stability, carries a multiplicity, carries veneration of animals and women in a way that later literature connects to what now we call yoga. Around the year 1500, before the Common Era, a new form of expression arose and moved out of that northwest cultural area and spread eastward and eventually over a few hundred years southward. And it was grounded on one of the most magnificent monuments to human ingenuity that endures into the present. When we think of Egyptian civilization, we think of the pyramids and the Sphinx. And when we think of Chinese civilization, we think perhaps of the great Shang bronzes and the emergence of the pictograph. But when we think and we learn about the major cultural contribution of ancient India, we must always recognize the centrality of the Vedas. The word Veda comes from the Sanskrit root word, which is vid. And the Vedas describe a collection of four song cycles that generated within communities, within families, about 3,500 years ago, perhaps earlier. And these song cycles give us a sense of the vastness of the cultural continuum between ancient Europe, even Scandinavia, and India, through this bridge of Iranian or Persian civilization. And they give us a sense of how this celebration of human life regarded and threaded itself to a life of the earth, and a life connected to the heavens. 
At the core of it, and this is in common with with the ancient religions of Persia, at the core of it is veneration for the deity known as Agni. In the story of Aeschylus, we find an echo of this veneration of fire. Agni in ancient Greek is ignis. Ignis, fire, the distinguishing feature of what it means to be human is to master fire. And in hymn after hymn of the more than 1,000 hymns of the Rig Veda, we find Agni revered. Agni as that light, that power, that heat that is external to the human condition, that defines culture, that defines the cooking of food, that defines the lighting of the darkness. And that fire within the human body, and the Vedas referred to as tapas, that fire of creativity that allows human families to prosper. Now these words from the Rig Veda, these hymns in honor of fire, these hymns in honor of so many different gods and goddesses, such as Indra, such as the goddess of speech herself, the hymn to Vak. These all lay the foundations for pieces of culture, pieces of ritual that find themselves externalized in large sacrifices and internalized in terms of refining our definitions of what it means to have the power of being human and how to bring these powers together, to harness these powers into a movement toward greater and greater goodness. One of the great contributions that help define in distinction from other early civilizations, the Indian moment is a story of creation that is simultaneously a narrative about how things come to be, but also the story of how human effort and human sacrifice allows the building of a life, allows the flourishing of a family, and allows the view of culture to be understood in a way that holds out the possibility of something even beyond what we can rely upon in terms of the creation and maintenance of human comfort. Now I know, as promised, this sounds a little bit elliptical, and it is, because in the Rig Veda, the oldest of the four collections of these remarkable hymns that were gathered and created and transmitted and continue to be taught orally throughout different training schools in India even today. 
But there's this one hymn that talks about long-haired people, naked people that are holding forth the possibility of a world that is outside of culture. And this may be an early tokening of the yogi, the renouncer, who serves in many ways as a conscience to society by giving up all that was safe, giving up all that was secure, and pointing toward a place of remove and a place of literal and metaphorical freedom. But let's look at first the ritual foundation for what becomes a very organized civilization, a civilization that uses ritual to enhance its well sense of well-being in the world, but also uses ritual as a way to point on how to rise above all of the pettiness of worldly concerns. So the narrative of creation from the Vedas starts with an acknowledgement of the a-sat. A-not, sat-existence. Sat, as with so many of these ancient Sanskrit words, is a cousin word of the English word is, and the English verb category of all that's implied with things that be and become. But first there must be an acknowledgement of the asat, this realm of chaos, this realm of instability, this realm of the literal drought, of no rain, no productivity, uncertainty. And this uncertainty is, in a sense, personified, or we could say theriomorphized, which means depicted in the form of an animal, but a magnificent animal, a legendary animal, a mythic animal called the dragon. And the Sanskrit for this early Vedic dragon is Vritra. And Vritra holds all possibilities from occurring. And then eventually Vritra rises up into the rain clouds, the rain clouds that bring the monsoon, the end of the month of June, the beginning of July, the monsoon that must arrive in order to break that long cycle of drought. And in India, the dry months last from September, October, November, December, the cool months giving rise through, again, a period of no rain, increasing heat in January, February, March, April, May, very, very, very hot. And then finally, Vritra promises he holds the ripeness of the monsoon, and then Indra, the correlate of Hercules, the correlate of Thor, the correlate of Mars, Indra, the god of 
war, throws his mighty thunderbolt into that cloud and slays Britra and makes Britra release the life-giving waters. And as these waters flow, stability returns. Sut becomes established. The agriculture will continue. The home will have food. The waters will replenish the reservoirs and life will continue with abundance. And once that certainty is there, ritual, yajna, sacrifice can flourish. It is said in the Vedas, there are hundreds of thousands of gods. Some say 330 million, some say 330,000, some say 33 gods, some say three gods. There are enough gods, there are enough goddesses to meet every human desire. And through the process of yajna, celebrated in the Vedas, outlined through the Samaveda and the Yajurveda on how to be performed, how all of the pieces of ritual can be gathered into one place, can be harnessed, and how to invite Indra to bring strength into life, how Lakshmi can be invited to bring reliable food and plenty and wealth into the home, how Sarasvati, the goddess of knowledge, can be invited and propitiated to bring knowledge and culture into the community, how Vak, the goddess of speech, can empower that great human capacity of speaking forth and creating worlds through our speech. How the dawn and the adityas and the rising sun and the setting sun can be venerated in such a way that every day is filled with anticipation and appreciation. How Ushas, the golden dawn, the goddess, can be remembered and bring joy and happiness. All of these powers through ritual bring us to a place where everything is okay, where we have a place of rita, where we have a place of well-performed ritual, of artistry, of rhythm, of order. All of these English words sharing that common Sanskrit root of best human fulfillment and best human vision, or dhir. The root also found in the yogic word samadhi. All of these are found thematically and explicitly within the Rig Veda, within the Samaveda, which collects the chants from the Rig Veda that propitiate all of these powers and goddesses, 
They are found within the Yajurveda, the explicit instructions on how to create the pit of fire, how to bring all of the elements of sacrifice, including the goodness and the greatness of the human voice into a ritual moment, and how what we find in the Atarva Veda, how to regulate our food, how to recognize the goodness and the power and the bounty of the earth, how to recognize the importance of clean water and fresh air, all of that forming the basis for the medical practices of Ayurveda. All of this gathered together as the foundation building Indian civilization on the Vedas, leading next into a culture of Dharma, texts arising out of that Vedic platform known as the Dharma Shastras, the teachings on how to live the good human life, and then also the Upanishads. In the northeast of India, in complementarity to the Vedic view of northwest India, in the northeast of India, we see a culture known as the Shraman culture, a culture that eventually gave us Sankhya and yoga and Buddhism and Jainism, a culture that values the inner world, the world of meditation, the world that says, yes, we so appreciate the grandeur and the beauty and the extent of all of these realms of creation, but how, how can we find that inner connection? How can we as shramans acknowledge, yes, the Brahmins have created a very good system for ritual and the Brahmins have hired themselves out and we know that we need to hire the Brahmins to make certain that they do those Vedic rituals to coincide with the coming of rain, with all of the rites of passage of moving from first name to second name, to initiation and through that realm of student and building toward householder and performing all that needs to be done within life, all of that culture is, is wonderful and important. But what is the greater knowledge? What is the knowledge of human intimacy, the knowledge of the power of breath that enlivens every being that walks the face of the earth, every bird that flies through the sky. How can we gain intimacy with breath? How can we see our connection with self, that breathing living being, the Atman? How can we see this small self in relation to the large self, the Brahman, that which is large, magnificent, and grand. These shramans, these meditators, looked very, very carefully 
and they found within their own being a connection with the large, and they developed techniques of breath control, they developed techniques of meditation that eventually develop into systems of yoga that we today can still inhabit, that we today can perform in order to feel that connection, that ritta, that rhythm, that order, that sense of ritual well-being in life that brings us to a state of wholeness, that brings us again and again to points of connection. The parent-child relationship is foundational to how we find ourselves in the world. And when we look at the story of Abraham, we see the incredible emotion that can be generated. God tells Abraham, sacrifice me a son. For the Jews and the Christians, that son is called Isaac. And for the Muslims, that son is called Ishmael. And we know that at the last minute, that son is spared and that son goes forward to take on the work of the father and create culture. But that moment of really ambiguity, will the son survive? Will the father come forward with forgiveness? We see the same tension in Oedipus, killing his father, replacing his father. And it causes us a little bit of introspection. What is that relationship, parent to child, father to son? And Shakespeare, Hamlet, the agony of Hamlet, trying to avenge the death of his father. All of us find ourselves emplaced and a life of questioning. So also is the Kata Upanishad. Kata, a story that carries a universal message that we need to recognize the responsibility we carry as parent, the responsibility we carry as child. And in this harrowing tale, it starts with the father of a young man, Nachiketas, casting his own son into death, actually doing what Abraham had been asked to do by God. And as Nuchiketas walks with regal bearing into the realm of death, he faces death and says to death, restore my life and restore goodness to the life of my father. In death, the red-eyed one is taken aback. And he says, young man, you have presented yourself with such stability and certitude and rectitude 
I grant you three boons. I grant you life and life for your father, a good life. That is your first boon. But what is your second request? And Nachiketa says in the Kato Upanishad, he says, teach me the nature of self. Let me know Atman. Let me know Atman, that power of the making of the world through breath. Mana, the making, At, At, the process of breath that gives us life, that emplaces us within this world. And he learned that nature of breath, and he learned how that smallness of breath, or seeming smallness of breath, within each living, breathing being, connects with the Brahman, the making man, the bringing forth of the, the Brahman, of the great, of the large. And he learned that everything that can be seen through this connectivity with breath can be known through that which is small. And he said to death, yes, let's continue with this. Let's continue with knowing the nature of Atman, the nature of the force of life. And then his third request was to know death. And interestingly, as he made that third request, and death did not want to give away his secrets, but death, so impressed with this young man, said, the secret to death is to be found in its intimacy with life itself. And in fact, all know in their intellect that they will die. But the truth is that at the core of what you know is your life, what you know is your Atman, there is something that is unborn, a presence that is constant, a presence that is eternal, that is so ancient that its origin point cannot be known, and so constant that its future horizon can never be determined as having an end point. That in fact, that even when the body is slain, that Atman, that great self, cannot be slain. There's a sense of the eternal in the ephemeral. And Nachiketis asks him, how, how can I know this? And this, in fact, 
is the beginning of yoga. This, in fact, is the beginning of an organized discipline so that relationship between the small, between the seemingly finite process of human breath, the inhale and the exhale, what could be smaller or more intimate than that? But by knowing that small point, by knowing that which is closer than life itself, it's through that that we can know and appreciate and in a very important way venerate that greatness and that which is greater even than the greatest. So what connects through the breath? And here in the Upanishads, drawing on themes from the earlier Upanishads that go back 800, 900 BC, this is a later Upanishad, maybe around 300 BC. But in this, we see imagery from the Vedas, imagery from the earliest Upanishads articulated through the metaphor of the chariot. Now, one of the great distinguishing features of what it means to be human, in addition to mastering fire, in addition to having the gift of speech, is that we are able to move. One of the great um, enduring rites of passage for young people, even today, is learning how to drive, learning how to move with ease and confidence from one point to the next. Now remember, teaching my own son, before teaching him how to drive, how to get on the bus and how to go as I had done as a young teenager, how to go to places where I could understand, I could learn, I could participate in cultural events, and political events, how I could expand my reach into the world. It's about transport, a rite of passage for many Americans and increasingly now in China, in India, in Africa, is learning how to drive, how to harness up that chariot of transport. In the chariot, an enduring image from the Vedas. The people of the Vedas were people who had mastered harnessing horses to a chariot, traveling far distances, discovering and settling in new areas. And the chariot of the human body links to the horses of the five senses and the mind. The chariot links to the olfactory, to the nose. The chariot links to the gustatory, to the sense of taste. The chariot links to the realm of form through the eyes. The chariot links to the realm, the domain of touch. 
in the chariot links, through human voice and through human receptivity of sound to the ears. And the superintendent of this all is the mind. So understanding human capacity through this metaphor of the chariot allows us to move into a hierarchy that says, yes, that mind, it can control the senses. It can direct at least three times a day for us to take in the enjoyment of food. It can, through the mind, allow us to gaze upon beautiful form, allow us to receive caress, allow us to know that our mind is literally in the driver's seat. And that driver's seat in Sanskrit is called the manas. But there's something greater than that. There's something in the realm of impulse. There's something in the realm of what we might translate as intellect. The Sanskrit for this word is buddhi. It's the reason why we awaken to particular propensities, and that is to be known and recognized and understood. We must know the source and the origin point of our impulses that lead us into the worlds that we traverse. But even more significantly, we must always remember and venerate and return to an acknowledgement of that which is greater even than our impulse. And that is Atma. That is linked to breath, that unborn, that constant, that which is the all that can be and connects us to the larger, that death instructs Nachiketas, that must always be born in mind, that must always be recognized as the greatest of the great. So as we see this early philosophical organization of human relationship to the world, we see that there is the realm of manifest reality known to us through our senses and through the mind. But we also must recognize that this manifest reality comes from a source that is held in potential as the unmanifest, and that higher than that unmanifest realm, that realm of emotion, that realm of impulse, that realm that drives us out into particularity, that even greater than that is the silence. Even greater than that is what is named in the Kata Upanishad, what is named as Purusha, named as consciousness, a consciousness that links 
the small to the large. But how, how can that be accessed? It's accessed through tapas, through generating heat, through very particular yoga practices, and understanding the operations of prana, understanding the operations of breath. So in the Kata Upanishad, we get the first definition, the first naming of yoga as spiritual practice. First, you hold back the senses, like pulling back on the reins through yoga, through that connection of control. Second, you become undistracted. Your mind becomes fixed, and in that fixing of the mind, there we find yoga. Yoga, which is the origin point and the end point. Death also teaches, because he's taken all living beings into that other realm, and as he squeezes the last breath and the last life, he says, your body has 101 channels, nadis. And these nadis go from the lower realms of the body through the heart all the way up into the head. And as you pass through death into the immortal, those forces, those energies rise up into the head and leave through the top of the head into the greater realms of the universe. As a human, our task is to gain intimacy with that realm of the heart, to understand how our heart translates all 101 possibilities, all 101 impulses out into the world with every outbreath and into the inner world, into the self with every in-breath. And what we must do is find through that stability of the breath how to make the human body like the shaft of an arrow, how to bring firmness and certainty the same certitude and rectitude that Nachiketas had presented to Yama. He says, keep that, keep that stability. And in that stability that you find in your heart, you will find that inner soul, that inner breath, that Atman, that Atman that is pure, that Atman that is immortal. So just as you have entered my domain with your goodness and I release you due to your goodness back into the realm of manifestation to live as your father would live, a full and complete life, so also in life itself you will find the immortal. You will find that higher self you will find that realm of connection 
wherein life itself becomes the context for the immortal. Go forth, as Nuchiketis did, with certainty that your breath holds in your heart all of your capacity to rise with yoga in to your innate, birth-given, breath-fueled goodness. Over the course of Indian history, the Upanishads give a snapshot, a sequence of snapshots about culture and the unfolding of culture, as well as giving a sense of all of the various communities and locales in which philosophical work was being generated. And quite often in these conversations, Upanishad literally means to sit down next to, shad to sit, and upani next to. Quite often we see that there will be the figure of a sage, someone who has gathered knowledge and wisdom. And interestingly, quite often we will find stories about how people gathered knowledge and wisdom. And then we will see either um, a woman or a man. Sometimes it is the woman giving the advice. But often we will see a king who is in a position of great responsibility, who himself, as the lead kshatriya or owner of the fields or surveyor of the fields, he has as his responsibility, upholding dharma. And dharma refers in the collective to everything that needs to be done by each and every member of society in order for everything to be conducted and felt as if in a state of harmony. So dharma holds together the world, the king, has to hold together the world of his community, of his society, of his collection of farms and merchants and workers, and support also the priests. And what he does is that he, first and foremost, has to retain his own dignity, has to, in order to be a just ruler, has to have solidity in his own um, in his own self, he needs yoga in order to make those connections that are essential to the maintenance of, of harmony. So in this particular story, which is the story of the Maitri Upanishad, one of the more recent Upanishads, it maybe was from the early few years before the Common Era, there's a king whose name is Burhad Rata. Burhad, like the same root that we get Brahman, so we know that the Brahman is about greatness, and Rata is the word for chariot. So King Great Chariot talks to this sage, this Muni, called Sakya Yanya, and asks Sakya Yanya, how can myself, my Atman, 
be seen as upholding and connecting with the Brahman, the largeness of the universe. And he learns that this life force, this Atman, takes not only human form, but takes many, many other forms, and that this Atman, even though it seems to be doing so many different things, in fact, at its core, remains constant, body after body, birth after rebirth. And in this latter part of Indian thought, by this time, it becomes part of Indian received wisdom or philosophy that the soul will go from body to body to body to body. And as we have already learned um, historically from the teachings of the Buddha, the human comes up against misery, comes up against suffering time and time again. So how can King Brittaratra, in order to do his job, find stability within himself in face of the difficulties that are inherent, the dukkha, the suffering, the uncertainty, the darkness, the Vedic term for some of this would be the asad, the unknown that haunts human reality. And in response, Shakyanya says three things. He says, study the Vedas. Invite the priests to come and chant. Learn what you can on how through ritual, on how through establishing connection with the rhythms of life, how you can find that stability in yourself that can extend outward into the kingdom. Number one, cleave to the Vedas. Number two, fulfill your dharma, fulfill your responsibilities that will inspire other people in society to do likewise. And always, and this is number three, always do this on the edge and with the edge that is known as tapas. Tapas, putting yourself into a situation that will stir up heat so that you can feel that power of life within. And tapas, traditionally in India, is performed through periodic fasting, is performed by perhaps a weekly or a twice-monthly day of silence, by being willing to confront those very forces of darkness, of dukkha, that call us into that place of the edge where we want to know, what can I do? to remain in intimacy with my breath, in intimacy with my higher self. And in this particular Maitri Upanishad, meditation becomes the vehicle through which to connect, through which to connect with named deities, 
for whom we already have some narrative. Brahma, okay, Brahma is the deity of all that is, the Vishvadeva, the God that is found through greatness in every particularity, in every particularity is a reflection of the totality, and the totality can only be known through the particularity. So a reminder, always elevate thought into that place of the timeless. That's the first deity to be recognized, the deity known as Brahma. The second deity to be honored is Vishnu in the Supanishad. In Vishnu, a well-known story, Vishnu is that avatara that takes birth whenever chaos rears its ugly head. And the forms of Vishnu, most recent and most intimate to the telling of this particular Upanishad, would most likely be the two incarnations, the two avatars of Rama and all that we know about the Lord Rama and Krishna, all that is to be known about Lord Krishna, the stories of Rama told in the Ramayana, the stories of Krishna told in the Mahabharata, the Bhagavad Gita, the Bhagavata Purana. Know those stories. Know those sad and happy tales of kings like yourself who lived, suffered, and transcended within the world and became, as you need to become, a model for others. Also, give respect, give veneration to Rudra, to Shiva, that third of these three great gods, the god of death, who will dance everything into the state of pralaya, into the state of dissolution, and out of that brokenness, life will reconstitute. Just as tapas, that putting oneself on the edge, sparks one into a place of disarray through which one, one, through which one recollects, recollects, and reconstitutes oneself, so also recognize the rhythm of the extended outbreath, that rhythm that reminds us of our intimacy with dissolution. And with that, we will go on to appreciate every new recreation that takes place with every single breath. And we will be able to celebrate all of the forces of creation found through that great Lord Prajapati, the Lord of each and every being. We will find an intimacy with that inner Agni and the power of the Agni, that fire that illumines all. We will find love and adoration for the God known as Varuna, the God of water that allows us to be quenched, our thirst to be quenched, that allows our food to be gathered and digested, 
that allows the blessings that come with the sprinkling of water. We will find a place of veneration for Vayu, the Lord of breath, the Lord of wind, for Indra, the strong God that is able to empower. We will find intimacy with the changing phases of the moon. We will find the goodness and the graciousness and the divinity that is found in food. We will respect Yama, the god of death. Let that reminder always give us sage counsel that whatever it is that we think to be the case, that eventually will itself, including our own self, face death and emerge from death victorious. And we must always honor and venerate the goddess of the earth, Bhudevi. All of this goodness gathered together in the syllable Om and in the Gayatri Mantra. Om Bahur Vuva Swa Tat Savitur Varenyam Bhargo Devasya Dmahi Dihoyona Prachodaya Echoing from the most ancient of Vedas, that particular mantra encapsulates that spark of human inspiration emplaced in that middle place on the earth, moving with the breath, oriented toward the vastness of sky, and asking for blessings each and every day. The Gayatri, the sacred mantra of initiation, whispered into the ear of the 13-year-old transitioning into adulthood, a companion, a constant companion, to kindle through the tapas of its recitation the reminder and the reality of that connection between human creativity and inspiration and the gift that we have of life that places us within the world and inspires us to lift up the Dharma, the Dharma of what must be done every single day. And Shakyayana goes on to instruct King Brahadrata in the forms of yoga beginning with pranayama. Pranayama, pratyahara, dhyana, dharana, tarka, samadhi. This is the earliest systematized form of yoga that we have in the history of the narration of yoga dating from the Upanishads. And it begins with control of breath, mastery of the inhale, the hold of the inhale, the exhale, and the hold of the exhale. 
pranayam in its most foundational expression asks that we gain intimacy with the gift of pran, the holding of pran, the release of pran, and the distance of pran. And that as we're able to learn and master the breath, we're able to bring in the senses, we're able to pull back on the reins of our compulsion to go after that good smell, to go after that good flavor, to let our eyes go to the most beautiful of sights for our skin to linger with pleasure, with our ears to relish beautiful sounds, but to allow all of that to gather back within the human body and the settling of the mind, and then moving in to meditation, into dhyana, into the sustained holding of one of those beautiful possibilities in concentrating, holding steady the mind and the senses, and then exploring through Tarka, exploring through the speculative mind, what are the qualities of earth? What are the qualities of water? What are the qualities of fire? What is the nature of breath and air? And how do we inhabit space? And as we're lifted into space, we enter into states of samadhi. The vision held together and in a place of intimacy. By joining breath with Om and understanding the operations of mind, we engage that yoga through which we rise above. And in the Kata Upanishad, we heard about that possibility of harnessing and in this, the Maitri Upanishad, we are given those six techniques through which to enact that elevation into intimacy of Atman and Brahman. And then the sage gives yet another technique. In later text of yoga, it's called Ketari Mudra, but he says, lift your tongue up onto your palate And with this, you can stabilize breath, you can stabilize your senses, you can stabilize the mind, and again, rise up into that connection with greatness. Yet another technique. And then return to the heart. Dwell within that space of bliss, the supreme abode, that heart place is the place of yoga. That heart place is where fire and sun unite. And by stabilizing within the heart, you gain contentment.
You can endure the pairs of opposites, hot, cold. You can reach that place of tranquility. Samsara, all of those activities, all of those births and rebirths, they are none other than your own thought. With effort, cleanse that morass of thought. Whatever you think that you become, this is the great mystery of yoga. Om. 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 From the earliest reckoning with the relationship between heat, voice, and breath, the sages of India saw that this experience of allowing energy, impulse, to well up in the core of one's body from the very place of the nabhi or the solar plexus and letting vibration ride that breath up through the various vibratory places within the body, the heart, the throat, the palate, and out to the lips, that there's a sacred acknowledgement that our breath has the potential to carry the spoken word, carry the spoken word out into the world to allow our particular human desires to be known. What we speak can then be grasped, but even more significantly, as we learn in the Shvetashvatara Upanishad, we're able not to compulsively always speak outward, beckoning for what we can grab, but we can learn and master that impulse by giving voice to the parent of all impulses by speaking that sacred syllable om, we contain all words and yet we contain no specific word. 
we invoke through that heat a relationship with the earth, with Prithvi. Agni, the fire of God in our veins. And Prithvi, all that we hold, all that holds us, the earth, and all that is crafted of the earth. In yoga, we're able to hold those forces in balance. We're able to hold those forces from a place of equipoise, holding the body steady. Dhritashvatara, like the Maitri, probably 300 years before the Common Era, an articulation of the specifics on how to be in yoga, how to slow down the breath. And studies have shown the efficacy of the Supanishad. Studies have shown that the person who does not practice yoga will breathe 12, 15 times shallow breaths in the course of a minute. But the person of yoga, given the frame of pranayam in the morning, will habituate into a six or eight or 10 breath rhythm that allows a place of control, a place of yoking, a place of yoga to be the foundation. Like harnessing vicious horses through the regulation of breath, which becomes automatic, there can be an abiding calmness. The Viteshvatara advises, when you practice yoga, find a clean and level spot. Have it be free of annoying pebbles. Have it in a place that's not too hot and preferably near the sound of water. And I'm gifted in my own small world with a spot that I visit each and every morning with the kindling of a flame, with the wafting of incense, with a fountain with bubbling water nearby, the canopy of a beautiful bottle brush tree, facing north, sometimes turning to face east, where a stability can be invited inward. A stability that in the Sritashvara Upanishad says, take a moment to notice if there's fog. Take a moment to let your gaze go with the smoke generated by the fragrant incense. Take a moment to notice, as I'm able to do, the rising sun, sometimes sitting in darkness with the sky just beginning 
to become light, sometimes feeling the heat of the morning sun upon the face, to be able to focus upon that kindled flame of the deepa, of agni, of the presence of light, acknowledging that fire that is both internal and external. And in the nighttime, to see the joy of the fireflies moving. And in monsoon season, or if you're in a different climate where lightning is commonplace, to just become alive with the flash of that lightning and to hold in one's presence a crystalline form of awareness. And in the nighttime, and sometimes during the day, to acknowledge the quiet presence of the changing phases of the moon. Each and every one of these become a gateway to yoga. And the Tsarateshvatara Upanishad specifies a five-fold yoga. Pancha-bhuta yoga, linking in sequence on each of the great elements. Doing dharana, doing concentration on the bounty and the sheer presence of the earth, of Prithvi. Doing dharana, holding, returning again and again to the gift and the bodily presence and the external presence and the sound presence of bubbling water and the flavor carried by water which flows and enlivens the body. The third great dharana, concentration on fire taking in the light, whether it be from the sun, or the rays of the moon, or a kindled lamp, or an electric light, reflecting on where, where do we find all of these sources of energy? Are we burning oil? Are we harnessing solar energy? Are we igniting our car with gasoline? Or are we part of that growing percentage that are using renewable sources to allow our transport, acknowledging Agni in the automobile or in the light rail or in the train or even the Agni that we've harnessed to fly through the sky in an airplane, reflecting, acknowledging, appreciating fire the fourth element to be acknowledged and embraced is the element of air. In the body, through pran, through pranayama, through the regulation and appreciation of the breath, and observing how Vayu, the great god of the wind, moves and announces presence through the shifting and the moving of the leaves of the trees, 
and the gentle vibrations of the fires of the rose, acknowledging that amazing process of photosynthesis where plants breathe, animals breathe, the animal called human breathes, and we're connected through breath in the universality of life. And then space, the space of silence, the space of the well-spoken word, the space of mantra, and the space of elevating oneself into that point of yoga, into that point of connection into that acknowledgement that that best self, even though perhaps experiencing a toothache, that best self is beyond the toothache. That best self experiences no sickness, no old age, no death. That crystalline, pure consciousness remains constant even through the greatest of adversity. And with daily practice, recognition of those elements, appreciation of all that can be found in this gift of life, this gift of breath, this Vritashvatara Upanishad says that you will rise into that place of lightness, that you will carry that sense of the light, that you will carry that place of healthiness, that you will dwell in a place of steadiness that will inspire others, that you will have a clearness of countenance and a pleasantness of voice. And it even says it will translate into a better body, that you will have sweetness of odor, that your excretions will be scanty. And with that elementary, as well as elementary baseline for yoga, that all of those will come in acknowledgement that you have reached that important first stage of progress within yoga, that is, your body itself will manifest a sense of steadiness, a sense of lightness, and a sense of pervasive well-being. And as one commits, according to this Vetashvatara Upanishad, to this daily rhythm of the practice of yoga every morning, acknowledging yoga, acknowledging connection through the day, the height of the day, and at the sunset, and through the evening hours, that you'll come to understand the nature of the universe. You'll come to a place of intimacy with that greatness, and that you, regardless of what is happening, what is 
manifesting itself, what is being birthed in any particular situation or circumstance or moment, that you'll feel a connection with that which is ultimately and radically unborn, that is steadfast, and that a discernment will arise that will allow every fetter, every binding, every drag on your particular story or narrative, that those difficulties will unravel, that you can systematically and sequentially allow those problems to fall away, and for you to be able in your highest self to elevate into freedom. In this Upanishad, as with really all Upanishads, and as we have discussed, the cyclical, the elliptical, the cycling through, but the spiraling upward requires, and this is a beautiful metaphor, that one, through a place of leaving behind all colors, to become the artist who paints and recognize the beauty in each and every colorful thing. Dissolve the world and recreate the world. Invoke Agni. Invoke that light, that power, that warmth, that flame that allows all things to be seen. Invite Agni in particularity of the kindled lamp or candle and see the connection with Aditya. See connection between that small light and the great light that is the sun. Remember always the breath. See that connection with Vayu, with the breath that moves all things. Acknowledge the moon. The full moon rises as the setting sun disappears into the west. The half moon you will see in the middle of its cycle. At sunrise, you'll see the half moon. And at sunset, you'll see the half moon. And like the moon, make your own visage pure. Feel your participation in the creation of greatness. Feel the fluidity that is your birthright and is your sustenancy, sustenance. Feel the fluidity that is your sustenance. Feel that you are the Lord of your own creation. Recognize that within you, you contain the powers of woman, you contain the powers of man, you contain the power of youthfulness, you contain the power of wisdom. Look out so that you see and you are inspired by that dark blue bird 
and by that green parrot with red eyes, lifted up in the Sri Tashvatara Upanishad, there is no beginning and no end to this, fat, this place of life. Recognize that within yourself, you hold two birds. One, always looking upon activity with the gaze that is eternal, recognizing the change, the activity that similarly seems to go on and on and on. We have both the capacity to witness and the capacity to act. Our job is to join the two. Namaste. Thank you for listening to this episode of Professor Chapel's lecture series about the history of yoga. Look for more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on podcast.glo.com. I'm Derek Mills. <laughs>